I'm Marianne Kolbesek McGee, Managing Editor of Healthcare Info Security. Today I'm speaking with Margie Satinsky, President of Satinsky Consulting LLC, a firm that provides IT and HIPAA consulting services to medical practices. Margie will discuss with us the challenges that smaller healthcare providers are facing with HIPAA omnibus compliance and tips for overcoming those struggles. Hi, Margie. Hi, Marianne. It's nice to talk to you this afternoon. You too. Tell us briefly about your firm and your role. I will. Uh, Satinsky Consulting is a small consulting firm. We've been here in Durham, North Carolina since 2002. And the services that we provide for medical clients include practice startup and include assistance in any kind of business problem that somebody may encounter after they're already up and running. So with respect to HIPAA compliance, I see it in two different ways. I see it in practices that are starting from scratch and know nothing about it. I also see it in practices that have been in existence for a while and may have uh, varying degrees of compliance, whether that be good or bad. I uh, have to approach it from both different perspectives. With respect to my own background, I ran a small pediatric specialty practice before I opened my own business. So I'm very familiar with the struggles of running a small business and trying to do everything. And I hope that the assistance I give my clients reflects my own knowledge and experience in a small business, small practice environment. In the work that you do with smaller providers, what are the biggest difficulties they're having so far with HIPAA Omnibus and why? I think, Marianne, that there are two different kinds of difficulties. One is, in most small practices, the practice manager or often the office manager who is less well qualified than a practice manager is doing everything. And when either a new law or revisions to an existing law, such as uh, the omnibus final rule in, in 2013, when these things come along, it's simply overwhelming for somebody who already has a full-time job. So it's very challenging to have to stop what you're doing and figure out what this new law says and how this new law may or may not relate to what you've already done in your practice. So I think that's number one. That's a big challenge. And the second, I would say, is that HIPAA compliance involves two types of activities. One is related to privacy, and the second is related to security. And I think that the response requires two different skill sets. Privacy is primarily administrative, and the guidance that the federal government provided in 2002 when the original rule came out and subsequently in 2009 and now in 2013 is all about administrative procedures. So to somebody in an administrative position, that's fairly straightforward. You just do what they tell you, and you do it in a way that makes sense for your practice. HIPAA security is more challenging. HIPAA security involves it involves your, your building, it involves uh, technical issues, and uh, it also involves administrative issues. And in many cases, even if you understand what has to be done, you yourself might not be the person who can best fix it. So those are the two big challenges, I think. One is simply being overwhelmed by the enormity of the task, and the second is that there are different kinds of challenges in privacy and security. What steps should smaller healthcare providers take in setting up priorities for the work that they'll need to do in order to comply with HEPA Omnibus by September 23rd? Great question. 
because if you can get started, then perhaps you have a chance of, of finishing what needs to be done in a very short time period. The first step with compliance with both rules is to use a checklist and go through that checklist to see where you currently are. So I'll give you an example. If I'm working with an existing practice, which I'm doing right now as somebody where I have done the HIPAA compliance before, this practice will take a checklist for privacy and security. It's my checklist. They'll go down the checklist and say, yes, we're doing this, no, we're not doing that. And then from the checklist, you create your priorities. If you are a startup practice, you have nothing in place. So you have every opportunity to get it right right at the very start. And you still use the checklist. You go down the checklist, and the checklist reminds you of all the things that you need to be doing. Um, let me give you an example. I think it's a really, a really good example. If you are a practice and you are HIPAA compliant, you would have had a notice of privacy practices and the business associate agreement that were originally done in 2002. If you were paying attention and you updated what you were doing in 2009, you would have had to change that again. So here we are, 2013. There's yet a third set of requirements. And the question for an existing practice is, well, do you go back and redo all the things that you had before, or do you simply start over and say, you know, it's new now, and I might as well forget about what I had before and just take a brand new sample business associate agreement or notice of privacy practices and start with that and spend less time than I would have to spend revising what I had before. You mentioned checklists of things to do. Related to that, the lack of timely or thorough risk assessment has resulted in some big fines from the Department of Health and Human Services for a number of healthcare organizations over the last year. And the department promises to ramp up enforcement even more so after HIPAA omnibus compliance deadline passes on September 23rd. What advice do you have for smaller healthcare providers that haven't done a HIPAA risk assessment in a very long time or ever, and how should they get started? So I think if you haven't done a risk assessment, you probably don't even know the right questions to ask yourself. And I would certainly seek guidance from an external organization. So I'll give you some examples of the places that I go to look in order to create the risk assessment questions for my own clients. I would go to Medical Group Management Association. HIMSS might have something in our state, which is North Carolina, and Chica might have something, and that's our state organization that deals with information technology and communications. So there are a lot of external agencies that have done that work of coming up with those risk questions, and that's a great place to start. Again, if you're a busy practice manager in a small practice and you don't have time to create your own, absolutely get one that somebody else has to offer for you. That's a terrific place to start. With the security questions, interestingly enough, I've had several people say to me, you know, Margie, these risk assessment questions are exactly the same as they would be for any industry. It's such a standard set of things to which you have to pay attention for security. An example is if you happen to have a server in your office, which fewer, which fewer people have these days, is it protected? Is it in a place where it's not likely to be damaged in any way? And a great example of that was a client I had that used to open the back door 
in the summer to let the air in, and the server was sitting right there in an unprotected area. So somebody could just walk in the back door, take a hammer to the server, and walk out, and nobody would ever know it. I can't emphasize enough the importance of getting those risk assessment questions and going through them. Now, related to that is the importance of documentation. You mentioned that the government is really stepping up its compliance, its enforcement, and it is imposing significant penalties on people who are not compliant. I think that small practices in particular have to take this seriously. You can't say, I'm a small practice, nobody's looking, it's pretty unlikely that I'll be the one that gets audited. You can't say that at all. I've been called several times by practices that have had some very unexpected experiences, and I'll give you an example of one of them. As you know, the meaningful use requirements for the financial incentive related to electronic health records has a requirement in it for HIPAA compliance. So the people who called me said, we applied for our financial incentive, and we didn't get it because there was question about whether or not we were really HIPAA compliant. And when the auditors came to take a look, indeed, we weren't HIPAA compliant, and we jeopardized our whole financial incentive. So although meaningful use is not the reason to comply with HIPAA, it's related to HIPAA, and I think small practices really have to take this seriously. Under HIPAA Omnibus, business associates will be directly liable for HIPAA compliance. What advice do you have for smaller providers in dealing with business associates moving forward? For instance, what sorts of changes are needed to the business associate agreements? How should they manage these relationships? And how should they figure out whether or not a vendor is a business associate? With respect to business associates, the definition hasn't changed much. It's a little more clear than it was at the very beginning. But the first step here is to make a list of all the vendors outside companies with which a practice deals and go through that list. So the big issue here is whether or not a business associate on a regular basis uses protected electronic health information to go about their business on your behalf. So I'll give you some examples of people who would be a business associate and people who would not be a business associate. I'm often asked to sign a business associate agreement. I don't do anything with patient information, ever. It never comes to me. I never look at it. So technically, I'm really not a business associate, and I don't need to sign the agreement. I've been known to sign it anyhow, just because I want to make somebody happy. But I'm not really a business associate. On the other hand, if I were a billing company and the practice was giving me on a regular basis information about services that had been rendered and demographic information about the patients so that I could bill and perhaps even collect on the practice's behalf, yes, I am a business associate. The omnibus final rule goes one step further. It makes business associates liable, and it also says if the business associate has a subcontractor, that subcontractor is liable. So, for example, going back to my suggestion about the billing company, if the billing company outsources something, the subcontractor is also liable. So the chain of command goes down a little deeper than it did at the very beginning. Back to your question, what's the first step? Who are your business associates, and do they meet that definition? Do they use, on a regular basis, protected health information in order to do the job that you have hired them to do? So that's extremely important. Another 
a requirement of the omnibus final rule that is different and important is that the covered entities, such as the medical practice and the business associate, should have a contract in place outlining exactly what the responsibilities of each one are. Right now, that doesn't always happen. It's always good business, regardless of HIPAA, but it doesn't always happen. Sometimes there's a, a gentleman's agreement or a handshake or whatever there is, and the terms of the contract are not put in writing. Back to the question about the audits. One of the most important things about HIPAA compliance is documentation. So if you have documented the fact that you've done a risk assessment, you've made some decisions about what you're going to do, and you document, document, document as you go along, if somebody comes in for an audit and you have something that you put down on a piece of paper and or in your, in your computer, you're in a position to be able to say, oh, yes, I know about this, I've thought about this, and these are the things that I have done. So it's not only knowing who your business associates are, who the subcontractors are, but it's also putting all that down in a way that could be great evidence for you if somebody comes looking. Are there any security technologies that smaller providers tend to overlook that could help them improve compliance with HIPAA? I think that the most important thing with respect to security and small practices is you don't have to do everything internally. And with some of these requirements, it's not rocket science, but internal people may not know how to do it, so they don't bother doing it at all. I've been in 100 practices where somebody's husband or wife or children are the security people because they like to play around with computers. And that's not good enough. Uh, one of the issues that I see very frequently, even when you do use an outside person, is that the outside people don't do HIPAA all day long. They do many other things related to information technology support. So you as an office manager or a practice manager need to be knowledgeable about what needs to be done. I'll give you an example of it. Supposing I'm the practice manager and I'm concerned about uh, passwords, I'm concerned about who's looking at a computer screen and whether or not patients can see what's on that screen when they're standing at a reception area. My IT support person may not know exactly what to do unless I tell them. So I may say, take a look at my waiting area. I don't want patients to be able to see the screen. And then he does something to the screen or he sets a timer on it so that it, it goes off after a certain period of time. It might not dawn on him right away, him or her, right away what they need to do without my guidance. So I think that using external security people is absolutely crucial. This is not something where I would usually say to a practice, particularly a small practice, I think you can do it. It's not that hard. And privacy is different. Privacy, I would say, I think you can do it. There's no question that, that you uh, can do it. I think the other challenge with security is the way the rule is written, it allows people a choice. So it, it may say, this is an area that you have to address, but you decide how you're going to address it. Here's an example of that. Security would say, you have to have a building that is protected, presumably, by an alarm. It doesn't say what kind of alarm you have to get, and it doesn't tell you how much money to spend on it. That's up to you. So in terms of making these small but very important decisions, you may want somebody who's more knowledgeable than you are about the choices that you have. 
So those are some things that I see that are very special about security. Do you have any final advice for smaller providers in, in terms of complying with HIPAA omnibus? Anything that people tend not to do or forget to do or just don't realize they should be doing? I do, Marianne. I think the most important thing is to start right this minute and not feel stupid and not feel overwhelmed. You have to start someplace. And there are plenty of people out there who know how to do it and have done it before. So I would start wherever you are and then seek the kind of help that you need. I would also uh, encourage people to participate in uh, professional uh, groups, user groups or, or whatever. I know in our particular community I do a lot of webinars and I do them for some of these groups. So I, I do a webinar, for example, for the pediatric practice managers in North Carolina. Once I'm finished, there will be a great deal of exchange of information amongst them about how they're complying with HIPAA and they'll help themselves. So I think that that's very important. There's help out there. All you have to do is open your eyes, <laughs> open the door, and, and you can get the help that you need in order to comply by September 23rd. Thanks, Margie. I've been speaking to Margie Satinsky of Satinsky Consulting. I'm Marianne Kolbasek-McGee for Healthcare Info Security. Thanks for listening.